Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I won't name the exact place for fear someone might try and go there and find her. I can't be responsible for that. I didn't want to go at first. I begged, pleaded, maybe even tried a little, but my friends Eric and Jimmy were going, and that was the sword my parents used to cleave through my complaints. You'll be with your friends. It's only a few weeks, and it'll be a good experience for you to be a little independent for once, my mom said. Independence. Hell yes, just not at a stupid sleepaway camp. Drop-off was on a Sunday. The air was thick and spongy. A hazy, sky-threatening rain. Basically your typical August sweat-fest. My younger brother Matty had a fever the night before, and with my dad working, my mom couldn't leave him, so I had to catch a ride with Eric. I remember accusing Matty of being a little baby and lying about being sick just to get attention. Something not uncommon in our house, but on this occasion, completely untrue. Which, of course, infuriated my mom. She rarely yelled, but for some reason this seemed to penetrate her calm, and she exploded on me. Looking back, it wasn't about Maddie. It wasn't about my mom. It was about me. I was afraid. Afraid of something new. Something different. Something unknown. Eric was slightly more excited about the camp than I was. Of the three of us, he had the sunniest disposition. Nothing really ever bothered him. 
I think that was especially true that summer because he knew he was leaving our small town and going to boarding school next year. His dad was a big ad exec who commuted to the city, something mostly unheard of where we lived, and they lived in a gigantic waterfront house. Everything always seemed easy for him, but looking back, I never considered how different he must have felt sometimes. He never showed it, though. His armor was an easy smile and quick wit, but over the course of our two-hour drive, I was able to wear him down and get him firmly on board with my theory that this was going to be the worst weeks of our lives, if I'd only know that would actually come true. I remember as Eric's mom turned off the highway, it was like we were entering another world. The trees were suddenly taller, long branches with broad leaves standing guard over this ancient green kingdom. A mile or two later, we approached the entrance to the camp, a dirt field which gave way to well-trodden grass with the silhouettes of the cabins beyond. A permanent dust cloud hung over it. I remember Eric's mom being frustrated because no matter how much she cranked the windshield wipers a new film settled moments later, a kaleidoscope of metallic colors glinted through the swirling dust as cars arrived. I stared as kids my age and older, my size and bigger, spilled out. Some looked hypnotized in a state of disbelief of their current whereabouts, while others were loudly greeting friends from years gone by, and still others were sobbing. I watched one boy who, oddly enough, looked like me, but with slightly longer hair. He locked himself in the car after his parents had gotten out. I never got to see how that self-hostage situation was resolved. Oh, and there were girls. It was a co-ed camp with fairly rigid separation, as we would learn. I was in that awkward phase where a girlfriend was pretty much a rumor, but subconsciously my stance on the whole opposite sex issue began to soften about that time. Eric's mom ushered us out. As I was grabbing my backpack and duffel out of the trunk, I felt a sharp sting on the back of my neck. Initially, I thought it was a bee, and I had already envisioned Eric's mom leaving with one passenger in tow due to a slight allergy to bee stings. But it wasn't. I heard Jimmy's unmistakable howl and turned to see my friend with a palm full of pebbles in his hand. That was Jimmy. All fun, all the time. He was smaller than Eric and I, but completely fearless. I'd seen him take on kids twice his size and win. As Eric and Jimmy's moms jabbered away, the three of us stood in the dust, and for a moment my fears slipped away and we seemed invincible. The three of us, together. This camp didn't stand a chance. Eric's mom's goodbye went on entirely too long. I did miss not having my old mother to hug and assure me that it was going to be fun, and someday I'd look back on this experience as a moment of change and growing up. One of those sentiments all these years later I wish I'd expressed to her more at the time. As the moms finally pulled away, it did feel different. It somehow felt right, like we were about to do something epic on our own. The cabins were split by a great lawn, nearly a football field in length. Boys on one side, girls on the other, both divided by age. The counselors lined us up and crossed. Checked everyone's name on the list. A simmering anarchy rose over the field. Veteran campers seeing one another again for the first time since last summer. New campers trying to find their place and counselors attempting not to lose their sin the first few hours. This was the around the time I first noticed her. Not Allison R. From cabin six, my first real crush, but the very tall girl standing at the back of the line, drifting near the edge of the woods as if she was trying to disappear back into them. 
I thought it was a maintenance worker or some other camp employee, and frankly a man because of her sheer size. Her broad shoulders were hunched, and she slouched as if she was trying to hide her odd proportions in all the chaos, but she had to be over six feet tall, maybe more. Her shirt and pants were oversized and ill-fitting, but she could still discern there was a solid frame beneath. She was built differently. She had a backpack double-strapped tightly over her shoulders, and the top met the length of her neatly cut hair. Something jutted out of the unfastened side of the pack. A doll of some kind! Eric elbowed me. He'd noticed her, too. Holy, she's huge! I didn't respond. He and Jimmy shared a snicker, then moved on to other faces in the crowd. Everyone was sizing everyone else up, looking for commonality, targeting difference. I couldn't take my eyes off the girl, and eventually she must felt it and met my stare. Even that distance I froze. Embarrassed, sure, but it was as if she'd come alive in that instant. She remained expressionless, but there was just something powerful about her eyes. There was a story there, a story that wanted to be told. I quickly looked away, but could feel her linger on me a moment, as if she didn't want to break the connection. Out of the corner of my eye I saw her head lower again, and she receded back into the crowd. I should walked over and said hello or good morning, introduced myself and asked how she was doing, where she was from. Anything. But I didn't. Our cabin had four other boys in it. One whose name I can't remember was our age, but the others were all seventeen or eighteen. It wasn't long until a serious Lord of the Flies vibe set in. The ringleader was a kid named Corey. He sucked. It was like he'd gone to bullying school and graduated with honors already. The other idiots just fell in line with him, and it was obvious they'd had a few summers together to sharpen their craft. The problem for them is they hadn't encountered a Jimmy before. I knew we had a secret weapon, and part of me wanted them to just keep prodding it enough for it to explode and annihilate them. Things came to a head the first night. We'd gotten back from some boring orientation. Meet your fellow camper thing, and I was lying in my bottom bunk. Eric got stuck with a kid whose name I can't remember, and Jimmy was above me. Given some downtime, thoughts about how bad I wanted to go home began to creep back into my head. I stared at the cracks in the bunk frame above me, started to find strange faces in them, and was in the beginnings of a possible scenario where they might begin talking and perhaps even possess me to put me out of my misery when a shadow fell over me. It was Corey and the idiots. They decided I was the weak link in the new herd, and they were about to pounce. Hey, F. Stick. That's your name, right? Dave Stick? It was so predictable and generic, I really wanted to ask him if his mother was proud or son was dumber than a rock. But instead, instinct kicked in and I sat up and swung one leg out of bed, braced for what might be coming. My dad had taught me how to throw a punch and I'd wrestled for a few years so I knew how to handle myself, but I didn't want this fight. I didn't want most fights. I was okay with just letting it be. It was, if they knew that, and it was fueling them. Corey took my water bottle out of my bag, opened the lid, and soaked me. The idiots laughed, braying like hyenas. Did you like that, F-stick? Then he was crumpled on the floor, bleeding. It all happened so fast. Jimmy had been watching from his perch above, watching and waiting. He decided the water bottle crossed his red line and launched off the top bed. 
He delivered such a quick, explosive beating that the idiots didn't have time to react, let alone jump in. I got my ass out of bed, too, just to make sure they didn't. Jimmy didn't say a thing, didn't gloat. He didn't need to. He just looked at the three of them and made it clear it would be worse next time if they decided to F with us again. Word did get back to the counselors of an incident, but Corey's bloody, possibly broken nose was explained away as an unfortunate case of walking into a door face first. Things were just different back in the day. Seemed you could get away with more. Kids scraped their knees on the pavement, fell out of a tree, and broke their arms. They had scars. It wasn't that bad things didn't happen. The news just didn't travel as fast. I met Allison the next day. First kiss a few nights later, but this isn't about that. This is about telling you what really happened that summer, what they covered up. This is about Jane and what they drove her to do. I didn't know at the time, but it started before someone hung her doll from the big oak which marked the dividing line between the girls' and boys' cabins. Boys can be mean, but girls can be downright cruel. On the fourth or fifth day, we were on our way back from the field when kids started gathering on the great lawn. A low murmur rose, interrupted by the occasional obnoxious cackle. Hanging from the lowest branch of the great oak was a two-foot doll. The face was strangely lifelike, not overly cherubic like most plastic toys, but elegantly carved and made with care. The long hair seemed real, finely threaded into what appeared to be a wooden scalp. The doll wore overalls, their stitching also expertly done. A rope had been tied around both her hands and looped over the bow, effectively hanging her like a medieval prisoner on the rack. We all stopped and stared. The angle the doll's head lolled gave it an almost ebbing life. Then the crowd began to part, and I saw her head loom over everyone. Jane slowly walked to the tree. I was awestruck at the power of her stride, something that size moving so effortlessly. Wordlessly, she reached up to the tall branch and untied the knot of the loop, let the doll ride the slack down into her other waiting hand. She looked it over, carefully. Meticulously. A girl! Yeah! Is that your only friend? You freak. A wave of laughter swept through the crowd. Jane turned, gaze still on her doll. She finally looked up. Everyone fell into a hush. Her eyes were cold, unfeeling, almost inhuman, like the eyes of a shark. She scanned the crowd as if she knew who did it, then silently walked back to her cabin. By this time, the counselors intervened, and everyone dispersed. I didn't know who did it, but heard from Allison that one of the female counselors, a college girl named Tessa, was in on it. She let the girls in her cabin drink, and seemed more than happy to stir up trouble. We began to hear rumors about Jane, that her family owned some of the land the camp was on. The Jane wasn't her real name, that it was an alias because she committed some awful crime, that she lived in the woods and ate animals, that she killed her parents, that she was a circus freak that escaped, and on and on. But it seemed no one really knew anything about her, other than her name was Jane. I should have said, I was sorry that happened to her and that kid sucked sometimes. 
I should have asked if she wanted to hang with me and Eric and Jimmy. I should have, but I didn't. The next night it got worse. We didn't see it happen, but we heard the aftermath. Tessa and her underlings locked Jane in one of the bathrooms. There was a central hub for each set of cabins that had toilets and showers, but there was also a single stall out near a maintenance shed. No one used it except the counselors, and I don't know how they lured her in there. Maybe she just wanted some privacy, and they followed her. We heard her deep, bellowing screams, her fists pounding on the door, her pleas for someone to please let her out. But no one did. By the time other counselors and campers arrived, it was quiet. When they opened the door, the bathroom was empty. The back window was completely shattered, and the few boards had been torn out, creating a hole large enough to escape. At the time, no one quite knew exactly what was going on, and the counselors did their best to sequester us for the next day. A few of them partnered and searched for her on the campgrounds, and as far as they dared go into the forest. But there were no signs. Jane was gone. I'm sure calls were made to her parents and maybe the police, so we waited for someone to show up distraught looking for her, but no one did. It was as if she didn't exist, as if she didn't matter. Tessa went missing the next day. When she didn't show for breakfast, they checked her room and found a familiar doll sitting upright in her bed instead. One of the campers heard they found a fistful of hair with chunks of scalp still attached to it near the door, as if whoever took her simply dragged her by the hair like a rag doll. Things descended into chaos at that point. This time, the police did show up. Parents did, too, demanding answers. We all left in a matter of hours. My mom picked us up this time. I'd never been so happy to see her. Somehow, the news barely made the papers. But again, it was a different time. The owner of the camp had an in with some influential people, and they managed to keep it mostly quiet. My best guess is money changed hands probably more than a few times. A local reporter did some digging, and there were records of Jane from one of the nearby elementary schools, but they stopped after the third or fourth grade, and it was impossible to match the schoolgirl photo to the Jane I knew. Police led search parties deployed, and they combed the forest. They found several huge, old, ramshackle longhouses hidden miles within its depths. The ceilings that weren't collapsed were over twenty feet high, the skeletal remains of an adult male and female were discovered buried behind the main cabin in a makeshift graveyard. The skeletons were abnormally large and, according to a third-hand account, from the coroner several hundred years old with several peculiar anatomical anomalies. They also found the skeletons of three infants and four juveniles, all with various defects. In the surrounding forest they found burial mounds. They were filled with animal bones bones were scraped with what apparently resembled human-like teeth marks. Only larger than any human tooth could leave behind. Allegedly, several tomes were recovered, but none were officially recorded in any evidentiary findings. I've personally inquired about them, and if they do exist, no one's talking. That same industrious local reporter alleged to have gotten a quick peek at one, but was unable to transcribe more than a few notes. He never published his findings, but I contacted him a few years back and got him talking over a bottle of wine. The tomes were nearly indecipherable, written in an ancient language resembling Germanic, perhaps an offshoot of an early strain of Latin, but what he ranted about most was that they were cobbled with a peculiar runic text. 
He showed me his original notes, strange symbols and words that just felt like they were from another time. A different, much older time. Eoten is the one that stuck with me. It's an early English word derived from the Norse, Jotun. It roughly translates to giant. Eric, Jimmy, and I remained close, even after college. Eric eventually moved overseas, but Jimmy stayed local. A few years ago, we got together and eventually talked about what happened. Talked about if we should... If we could have done anything different to change it. A simple hello. A kind word may have changed everything. As close as we are, I got the distinct impression neither wants to talk about it anymore. They've locked it away in some dark corner of their minds where the stuff we don't want to remember lies and waits. Despite wanting to forget, I've kept close tabs on any new information that trickles out relating to the incident. The occasional missing person in the area makes me wonder if someone wandered too far off the beaten path. I tried driving out to the camp once, but they ran part of the highway across it, and wilderness has somewhat filled in the rest. The woods looked as old and deep as they were all those years ago. I quailed an urge to just wander off and see if she would find me. I think Jane's still out there, surviving, watching, waiting for her time to come again. Maybe she isn't as alone as we think she is. Who knows how long they've adapted to hide in plain sight like she did. But I always come back to the same haunting thought. It wasn't that I did something wrong. It was that I didn't do something right. The chaos of the Iranian Revolution served as the backdrop for one of the most perilous missions I had ever undertaken as a CIA operative. I find myself compelled to share this story, to shed light on the risks we faced in the pursuit of national security. It was a time of fervor and unrest in Tehran. The revolution had engulfed the city, and the streets were filled with passionate protesters and armed militants. My objective was clear extract a valuable asset whose knowledge could prove vital to our understanding of the rapidly evolving political landscape in Iran. I knew the stakes were high, and the consequences of failure could be dire. The Iranian authorities were on high alert, and any misstep could spell disaster not only for myself, but for the asset I was tasked with rescuing. Every decision I made had to be calculated, every movement precise. Iran's once-bustling streets had transformed into a maze of uncertainty and danger. Roadblocks manned by zealous revolutionaries dotted the city, forcing me to navigate a complex web of hidden routes and back alleys. I had to rely on my training and instincts to slip past the watchful eyes of the Iranian authorities, always one step ahead of their pursuit. The asset's location remained a closely guarded secret known only to a select few within the intelligence community. This information asymmetry was both a blessing and a curse. It allowed me to operate discreetly, but it also meant I had to rely on my resourcefulness to locate and extract the asset from the heart of the revolution. Each day brought new challenges and risks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The protests grew more volatile, and the government crackdown intensified. It was amidst this chaos that I found myself weaving through the teeming crowds, scanning faces for any signs of recognition or danger. In the midst of the turmoil... I made contact with a network of brave individuals who sympathized with our cause. They became my lifeline, guiding me through the intricate web of informants and safe houses. These ordinary citizens risked their lives to aid me, driven by their belief in a better future for Iran. Finally, the moment arrived. The extraction point had been carefully chosen, a covert location where we could discreetly whisk the asset away from the clutches of the Iranian authorities. It was a tense and nerve-wracking operation, with every second feeling like an eternity. As I stood there waiting for the asset to arrive, the weight of responsibility pressed upon me. Lives depended on my success, and failure was not an option. Then, in the midst of the swirling chaos, I spotted them. An individual whose face held the key to critical information that could shape the course of history. Swiftly and silently we executed the extraction, slipping away from the chaos and into the shadows. The asset, well aware of the risks they faced, trusted me to deliver them to safety. We moved swiftly, evading the authorities and using every resource at our disposal to maintain a low profile. Hours turned into days as we navigated the treacherous path to freedom. Finally, we reached our destination, a safe house where the asset could find refuge. Exhausted but elated, I watched as they disappeared into the safety of the shadows, knowing that their knowledge would be instrumental in shaping the future. As I reflect upon that mission amidst the Iranian Revolution, I am reminded of the sacrifices made and the profound impact that intelligence operations can have on the course of history. The risks were great, the challenges immense, but we persevered, driven by a collective belief in the pursuit of truth and security. Though the details of my role must remain shrouded in secrecy, this glimpse into the tumultuous world of intelligence work serves as a testament to the resilience and determination of those who navigate the shadows. It is a reminder that, even amidst chaos and uncertainty, the pursuit of justice and the safeguarding of our nations must always remain at the forefront of our endeavors. In Wyoming, my co-worker and I were doing a survey miles from any road or property, and I spotted a couple of big rocks that had been laid against another rock jutting out of a hill. This made a small cave shelter big enough for a person to lay down in. I walked around the other side of it to see inside. It was blocked with a tarp, but I could see some bags and boots in there. After taking some pictures prior to disturbing anything, I removed the tarp and found in a framed backpack pink hiking boots and a black duffel bag. 
The uh, frame backpack had nothing inside, and neither did the hiking boots. The black duffel bag had a big black jacket directly inside, probably to protect what was underneath. Under that was an old early 2000s laptop and charger and an early 2000s camcorder and charger in the main pocket. Underneath that was a bunch of camcorder tapes labeled things like 2013 stories and New York experiments. Then came a yellow folder full of letters to various people and a shit ton of driver's licenses. I didn't look at all of them, but they were all of different people, and the oldest I saw was a CIA license from 1976. At this point, I am kind of scared, but also there are two zippered pockets remaining on the duffel. One on the right, and one on the left. The right pocket held more letters and licenses crammed into the pocket. I moved those aside and found a hockey mask. Like a Jason horror movie hockey mask. The left pocket held a black ski mask, complete with eye holes and a mouth cut out. Inside the mask was a smartphone and charger. Underneath all of that, a 9mm Glock and boxes of bullets. Frightened my co-worker, and I hiked until we got service and called the land agency law enforcement. I was rather nervous I was going to get in trouble for disturbing a crime scene or something, but they seemed very bored by the whole thing. The next day, we hiked out with law enforcement to show them the whole thing, and I put everything back before leaving, and they boxed it up, thanked me, and said, well, this is the weirdest thing I've seen. This was less than a year ago, and I really want to know what happened with it all. In these hills and hollows, I am not surprised often. You fall into a rhythm here, the longer you spend... The less things you see or hear around truly surprises you. One animal that always surprises me is a cat. I was nine when I realized that my mom's barn cat always ate the heads first on mice. I was eleven when I realized all cats do that. Big and small. I was walking up the headwaters of a tributary of Elk River. Elk River is a wild stream. It boils, rolls, and digs deep the holes that incur the full wrath of that river. The streams that feed the elk are steep, fast and cold most of the year. But in August, everything heats up. Big trout escape the warming water by sneaking up any small streams not dried up and eat any fish or creature they can fit in their gullet. Seriously, I caught a brown, just over 20 yard, half a mile up a gully, in a stream you could stand on both sides. But I digress, me and a friend used to catch a ride with his older brother, a log truck driver, he would drop us off at one of those tributaries in the morning and pick us back up on his last trip of the evening. Only thing he would tell us, watch out for rattlers and have you ask beside the road at five or you walking the slady. So with a sack lunch and fishing poles, we would take off into the shadowy haulers. Me and Meb was leapfrogging up this long rocky creek, catching brookies in every hole, fishing towards lunchtime at the head of the stream. I got a little away from Nub in a long, steep stretch of unfishable white water leading up to a set of falls. As I finally found a piece of land flat enough to rest above the falls, I looked around and I see something off about this laurel thicket. Limbs bent the wrong way. Leaves turned up like it was broken. I walked closer and it looked like something grayish-white hanging way up in the tree. Nub finally caught up to me, bragging over the roar of the water how he, he's caught and released. 
over 47 on this stream. Now there ain't no trap above those falls. And why do I always climb up and fish past the on dead water? And he seen me standing there surprised. Nub stopped, caught his breath, and asked me why the hell I was staring at the sun. I said, shut up and look at that tree. What is hanging from it? We walked closer, and it looked oddly familiar. That's when I realized it was deer hair. Help! That's deer carcass hanging up in that tree. An old one, but a carcass. Just the same. They couldn't figure out how it got way up there. It was close to noon, and we was a long way from the hall road. Let's eat lunch and start making our way down. I popped a can of beanie weenies and dug out a bologna sandwich. And Nub pulled out two cans of pop and handed me one. We sat 30 yards away from our conversation piece and ate lunch. After we satisfied our growling bellies, we sat and rested for a few minutes. Nub stood up to go wander of and take a piss. How you reckon that deer got up there? He said. Hell, I don't know, Nub. Maybe it climbed up there and died or something dragged. It up there. I stood straight up. Nub, you ever knew a bear to drag anything up a tree? Why would it? Nothing is running a bear off a whole deer on the ground. Not coyotes. Not hounds. Not another bear. When he turned around, I could see the fear all over him. We silently packed up lunch, broke down our poles, and commenced to get out of there as quickly and quietly as we could. We made it back to the hall road an hour before his brother was coming out and left an arrow pointing out made of sticks. So he knew we started walking out and to catch us on the way, and then it started to rain. We were halfway back to the old mill when I heard that old triaxle rumbling up the hall road. We took shelter under a overgrown iron tree beside the road, not like it mattered and waited for him to catch up. We climbed up in the truck, stashed our gear, and told him what we saw as he drove us out. We stopped at the mill to unload, and Nub's brother told us to come on. We have to talk to someone. We told our story to an older gentleman who worked at the mill, and he drove us back down the hall road and marked that hollow with a pink ribbon. Years later, I found out that old man was a farmer, and he had been losing sheep for years and finding them hanging in the treetops. Young calves, too. We had stumbled into the hall that Cat called home. What he did to that cat, I know not. I don't want to know, but we never fished anything that ran into the elk until I got old enough to handle myself. Never unarmed and never alone. That was my first experience with big cats. I lived in Iowa when I was in college. At nights after I got off work, I would take my dog, Boxer, out for a run in a local trail. It was approximately 5,000 paved running trails going through a wooded area, and it was usually pitch black. One night, my dog, who was as calm as could be, was riles up, and he kept growling and trying to go into the woods. From the beginning of the run until the end, throughout the run, a loud growling noise would follow me. I ignored it at first, as there were no known natural predators in Iowa at that time. However, I am pretty sure that was the fastest 5K I ever ran. In the next few months, I heard of some mountain lion sightings in the area. Once in a while, we would hear about them, but they were so rare it could have been someone mistaking a dog for a mountain lion. Now I see pictures of mountain lions from people back home on Facebook. 
I am pretty sure a mountain lion was stalking me throughout my run, and it probably would have taken me down if it wasn't for my dog. I still remember the growling following me. It's like it was actually right next to me the entire time. My father and a few friends of his used to go out to a ranch in Nevada that was hours away from any human contact to go shooting. Me and my younger family always talked of someday going on our own, and they advised against it. Four years ago, me and two of my cousins and my brother go on our own in a Subaru outback and a Ford of 250 to the spot, and found a huge broken-down brick house with a pool about 30 by 50 foot. We hard heard from my father that the owner of the house used to be a drug dealer from Mexico that my family knew and his house was blown up by some competitors and the family fled. We set up camp in it and slept that night. The following morning we all wake up to go shooting and drove around for a good spot. As we drove we spotted the ranch my father spoke of in the distance and someone waving at us from the front of the house with four others sitting around the side cooking something. We waved back and kept going. We finally found a spot that had a hill to shoot at a bit farther away. After we were done, me and my brother went up the same hill to get a view of the area, and we saw some clothes and a blanket and went to check it out to find. And it was a body that was out in there for a long time. We ran back to the group and got out of there as fast as possible. As we drove back to the main road and down to the city as fast as possible, we all started to get reception again with my brother and my phone getting massive amounts of text. It was from my dad and some of his friends. I called my dad and told him what happened, and he said not to call the cops or go back to the ranch. The people who waved at us were drug dealers who took over the house, and the body was most likely some old competition that got rid of him and took over the ranch. My brother did eventually call the cops, but they never found anything there. My name is Jake. And as a park ranger at Yellowstone National Park, I had grown accustomed to the unpredictable nature of the wilderness. However, nothing could have prepared me for the bizarre series of events that were about to unfold. It all began when I was called to investigate a string of strange occurrences within the park. I set out on my own. My curiosity piqued by the reports I had received. As I ventured deeper into the forest, I stumbled upon a mysterious ancient artifact. The object was unlike anything I'd ever seen, and it seemed to emanate an eerie energy that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. As I cautiously examined the artifact, I inadvertently unleashed a powerful supernatural force. This energy surged through the park, transforming the local wildlife into horrifying hybrid creatures. A monstrous Bigfoot-like beast emerged from the shadows, its eyes filled with a terrifying intelligence. A snarling werewolf stalked the underbrush, its fangs glistening in the moonlight. Skin-crawling crawlers scuttled through the trees, their movements unnervingly fast and silent. These once-familiar creatures had become unknown predators, threatening the very balance of nature within the park. I knew that I couldn't face this threat alone, so I quickly contacted my fellow park rangers. Together we set out to uncover the artifact's origin and find a way to return the creatures to their natural state. As we delved into ancient texts and consulted with experts in the field, we discovered that the artifact was the key to both unleashing and reversing the supernatural force. 
With time running out, we devised a plan to neutralize the energy and save the park. Our mission was fraught with danger as we faced off against the deadly predators. We relied on our training, resourcefulness, and unwavering determination to see us through the harrowing ordeal. In the end, we managed to perform the ritual necessary to reverse the transformation, using the artifact as the conduit for the energy. As the supernatural force dissipated, the creatures reverted to their original forms, their monstrous features fading away. Exhausted but relieved, we returned the artifact to its resting place, ensuring that it could never again unleash the terrifying power it held within. We vowed to keep the events that transpired a secret, protecting both the park and the world from the knowledge of the supernatural force that had nearly tipped the scales of nature into chaos. Context. The day was pleasant and festive. Opening presents early in the morning with my sisters. Hearty breakfast made by Dad. Delicious smells from the kitchen as Mom and Dad prepared a feast. Visits from extended family bringing pies and cakes for dessert. Around two we all sat down to eat and then lazed about for the rest of the afternoon into the evening. Story. At about eight, after everyone had left and the food was all put away for round two the following day, I decided to head over to visit my friend in the next village. The drive would be about ten minutes if I took back roads to get there. So I did. First, a little background on where my friend lived. It was a housing development surrounding a private lake, you might call it a gated community. You could still drive through it freely after hours by entering one of four private entry points. Since the community was built around a lake, the roads surrounding it went in a spiral sort of shape. The houses were sparsely positioned on the outermost part of the spiral road, closest to the four private entry points. As you drove in further, there were a lot more houses positioned closer together, nearer the lake. My friend lived on the outer edge of this development, so once I reached the entry point, it would only take me another few minutes until I reached his house. His house, along with all the others, were far enough apart that you couldn't see them from the road as you drove by. There were either woods all around with long drives or open fields with long drives. You could see porch lights on in the distance but that was about it. As I entered into the development, the speed limit dropped from 30 miles per hour down to 20. There were no street lights in the development, and for some reason I never put my high beams on. I couldn't go any faster than the speed limit because there were speed bumps in place every 30 feet or so for a bit. It was a mild night. I remember having my driver's side window open slightly, taking in some fresh air. I remember driving in silence, which was unusual for me. I normally always listen to music when driving. I must have been enjoying the quietness after the commotion of the day. I reached a section of road that had barren fields on either side and woods set back. Houses were probably nestled back into the trees. As I drove, I noticed what looked like someone walking up ahead on the opposite side of the road, coming in my direction. Mind you, I was still going about 20 miles per hour the whole time so it was probably less than a minute by the time the walker came into clear view. I got a quick scan of it from my windshield before my car, and it were exactly parallel. This is what I saw. It was not a person. It stood on two long legs with long arms hanging down from its shoulders. It was strong-looking, 
lean, muscular, but not beefy in stature. It looked thin at the same time. It stood at least seven foot tall. It was light-colored, not sure whether it was white, tan, yellow, or grayish. It didn't appear to have fur, but there was some texture to the skin. It wasn't smooth. There appeared to be something coming down off its back. I don't know what this was. All I can recall about its face is the small features it had, but the mouth and jaw were notably large. And it had pointed things atop its head, two things going straight upward with something mingled between the two things. That's what I got from a quick scan and from my observation of it. As it neared my car, my car neared it. As my car became parallel to it within a split second, I went from looking out my windshield to looking at it from my driver's side window. In that moment, its face quickly peered down at me, and all I remember was the mouth opened wide. Out came a remarkable scream that I'll never forget. Gives me the chills just thinking about it. It consisted of a high-pitched, shrill shriek, enveloped by a deep guttural growl. Both sounds happened simultaneously in that scream. I kept driving all the while. This was all happening so fast that I didn't even have a chance to be scared or shocked or anything. I continued driving and went past my friend's house and drove home, called him to tell him what happened and that I just needed to get back. I was probably running on adrenaline to get back home. Later on, I was in total shock after it sunk in. Had my driver's side window been open fully, it would have touched me, or worse, taken me. I'm certain of it. To this day, I still haven't worked out what this was. Anyone else see anything like this or hear what I heard?